If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at verses 3 through 9, continuing our series that we started last week in the book of 1 Peter, looking just at the first couple verses and then reading through the book. But this week, reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, JC, our daughter, is currently in swim lessons and she loves it. But when I say swim lessons, uh, know that I'm meaning that pretty loosely. It's less swim lessons as much as it is Attempt not to drown lessons. They're trying to teach her how to hold her breath, how to maybe get her head just above water, how to try to climb up out of the pool. And it's a slow method in this course that she has to go through. It's over several years they do that. They're starting pretty young. She did them last year when she was just one. Now she's almost two and she's in roughly the same lessons. They're just trying to teach kids these basics to try to let them survive. But what they don't do on the first lesson is walk in, grab the nearest toddler, and just chuck him in the pool. They don't do that. They don't do that even though that might have been your grandfather's method of teaching you how to swim. They don't do the John Wayne method of just grabbing whoever and throwing them in and telling them, well, they'll figure it out. They slowly bring them along so that they understand what's happening. If Peter... Uh, We're trying to. I don't think that Sunshine Academy would allow him to teach swimming lessons to the minnow classes based on what he has done in these first few verses in his letter. As we begin the substantive portion of what 1 Peter has for us, Peter immediately jumps in the deep end. In fact, what we read as verses 3 really through 12 in the original language, whenever Peter wrote them, that was one massive sentence. Whenever we read it now in English, it's several sentences. It's split up by verses. I'm even splitting it between two weeks of things that we're talking about. But whenever he initially wrote it, it was one massive, long, complicated sentence. Everything he says is interrelated. Everything depends on everything else that he says. But logically, none of what he says in these verses, which we're going to cover over these next few weeks, would possibly happen without God's people being born again. Just like Jesus said in John 3, if you're not born again, then you can't be counted among God's people. None of the rest of these verses apply to you if you haven't been born again. So today we'll see four results of being born again in our text. The first result of being born again in today's text that you will see is that you have been born again to a living hope. Verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter begins his long sentence with a praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But specifically in this verse, Peter is blessing God because of his mercy in causing us to be born again. So everything we're going to see today, all of these results of being born again or regenerated, I'm going to use those words interchangeably, born again, regenerated, regeneration, generation beginning, re-again, born again, all those things I'm going to say interchangeably. But all of this comes from, all of this is caused by God. It's not we who are the ones who have caused us to be born again, it's God who has caused us to be born again. If God doesn't take the initiative here, if he's not the one who shows the initiative in showing grace and mercy toward you, then there's nothing that you could possibly receive in these verses. All of these things that we know and see in our world, they come from him as the creator. But all of the things that happen in our lives as Christians for us in the gospel come from him as well. And I recognize as we're going to get into this, even as some of the language that we saw last, year, last week, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, as we talk about some of these concepts of election and predestination or regeneration as it precedes faith, I recognize that that can make you a little bit nervous. That You might hear those things and initially go, I don't know what this is talking about, and I don't know if I like that. And let me tell you, that's okay, but I want you to... First of all, notice here that you don't get all of the good that we see in these verses. All of these great results of being born again, none of those happen unless God is the one who causes it to happen. We don't get any of that without these kind of truths, that God is the one who takes the initiative in saving his people. God causes our salvation from beginning to end. If he doesn't cause it, if he's not the one who does it, then it just doesn't happen. Because it's according to God's great mercy that we have been born again. This, you see, this wasn't wages that we were owed for being good people. This isn't God saving us because he needed us. Or because his team, his life was incomplete until he now had you. No, it's all mercy. It's all grace given to you. It's all him not giving you what you deserve and all him lavishly handing you better than you could possibly think that you should be getting. God causes the entire process of our salvation from beginning to end without you contributing anything to it. It is his salvation which he bestows through faith in him to his people out of love for them and pursuit of his own glory. But this mercy toward you which has caused you to be born again, results in you having now a living hope. Remember who Peter's writing to, what we talked about last week. He's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, people who are currently under persecution already and are about to be under even worse persecution. And he's saying that since you've been born again, even in the midst of those circumstances, you can, you do have a living hope. And think about that phrase. It's hope. It's the unchangeable attitude that all will be well. That you know that that is true. The unchangeable attitude that it does get better than this. It's hope, but it's a living hope. It's an active hope. 
It's a hope that continues. It's a hope that grows. It's a hope that stays with you whenever things get even dicier than they may already be. But notice in the text why it's called a living hope. Because it's been given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ back from the dead. So our living hope isn't simply some disembodied attitude. It's not just some emotion that we might have, even though I think it is that. Our living hope is a person. It's Christ. Because Jesus has come back from the dead, we are now also brought back from the dead with him in him. And just as surely as he is alive, we can have hope in the midst of whatever we might have to go through that his life is our life, that he is our living hope. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that he who is alive holds the future. Because Christ, who is my hope, is alive, I know that the hope that I have in him can never die, just as he never can either. For it was dead, but now it's alive. So when things get as dark as they will get, when your kids get divorced and it gets messy, when you got laid off months ago and now it's time for you to lose the house, when you spoke up about the company's pride initiative in June and now suddenly you're getting called into meetings, it feels like your job is in jeopardy. In the midst of whatever that might look like for you, Your hope doesn't have to waver in the midst of those storms because your hope isn't found in your circumstances. It's not found in your disposition, in your emotions, in your feeling. Your hope is found in the fact that Jesus Christ is alive and his life is now your hope. So now that you've been born again with him who has risen from the dead, you have that same living hope through him. Because you were born again, now you have a living hope. And just as you received a living hope through your regeneration, you also have received a heavenly inheritance. That's the second result of being born again in our text. You have a heavenly inheritance. Look at verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You were born again to a living hope in verse 3. And in verse 4, you're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's eternal. It's pure. It's steady. It's never going to perish. Your mother's beanie baby collection that she wanted you to have when she died, that's going to decrease in value. Moths are going to eat it. It will be destroyed. But the inheritance of God for you won't go away. It's undefiled. There's no water damage on these baseball cards. There's no capital gains on this property. You get it exactly how you should have gotten it, how it should be, as it's intended to be. It's unfading for you. What it is is what it always will be, and what it is is as good as it could possibly get. It never gets worse because it's kept in heaven for you. Just as Christ, who is your life, is in heaven, as a secure and steady promise of your life, so your inheritance is now kept in heaven as the same secure and steady promise of God's gifts toward you. 
And that same dynamic works with yourself as well. Verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, the same eternal, pure, and steady aspects of your inheritance also apply toward your own faith, toward your own salvation. By God's power, by that which spoke the world into motion, by that which is currently upholding the universe by the word of his power. That is what you're being guarded by. A few years ago, I watched a documentary about the McDonald's Monopoly scam. That game that I played religiously growing up, every time it came out, I wanted to go to McDonald's every day so that I could go and get a little game piece, I could put it on the board, in the hopes that if I got Boardwalk, I'd be able to win a million dollars. My parents, I begged them all the time, please can we go to McDonald's? I need more pieces. My roommates in college, there were six of us in one house and we ate McDonald's, one of us, at least once every day and we all pooled together to try to win this McDonald's Monopoly money. And I watched a documentary a couple years ago that said the whole thing was a scam. No one ever legitimately won the million dollars because the guy who is in charge of the security for the whole thing, rigged it. He stole the pieces and he sold them on the side for his own profit and a cut of the money that they would win. And people had no idea that this was happening. The McDonald's people didn't know. No one else knew but him and the people who bought the pieces. And that's because they were so sure about the security of what was going on. The whole process was so secure, they said no one could ever be able to scheme this thing out. They had UV rays on the, the different pieces to be able to make sure that it hadn't been tampered with. They had a defect that they printed into the one piece that had the million dollars in it so that no one would be able to possibly forge it. The guy walked around with it in a briefcase that was handcuffed to his wrist, and everyone said, this is as secure as it could possibly get. Until it was scammed, and they found out later that no one followed him into the bathroom with the briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. So after it went through security, every time he'd say, oop, give me a minute. He'd go into the bathroom, go into a stall, open it up, steal the piece, replace it, and no one ever knew. That's how unsecure it actually was, this whole process. But they thought it was so secure because they trusted in all these other things, except for the security of the guard, of the one who was in charge of keeping this secure. But your faith, the one who is guarding that, the one who is making sure that nothing could ever possibly take you out of his grasp, isn't some guy with a dumb briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. It's the God of the universe. It's the one who spoke all things into motion. You see, if the guard isn't trustworthy, if he isn't capable of guarding what he's been charged to protect, then it doesn't matter what it is that he's protecting. It doesn't matter what else is going on around it. It's not safe. But because your salvation is guarded by God, by his power, then there's nothing that could possibly happen to you. You have infinite resources focused on the security of your salvation. That is as overkill as overkill gets. This is asking Superman to walk you from your car to your work because it's early in the morning and you're afraid. 
there's nothing that could possibly happen to you. You are as secure as you could possibly be. But let me point out that the way this guarding looks for you on your end doesn't look like you've got God's arms wrapped around you. It looks like you just exercising faith. It looks like you persevering in faith. You see, God is absolutely guarding the salvation of his elect exiles. He is preserving his people, his saints, to the end. There's no doubt about that. But what that looks like for you and in your life is faith. It's the day by day, the moment by moment continuance of your posture toward God. That you believe he is who he says he is. That you believe he's done what he said he's done. And that based on his gospel, your faith in who he is and what he's done. That you're going to be saved at the last day. The last day when your faith is revealed. You see, I think we sometimes think wrongly about this idea of once saved, always saved, of God preserving his people to the end. That's a common phrase you'll hear in Baptist circles a lot of times, is once saved, always saved. And the truth that it's trying to say is absolutely correct. I'm not going to contradict that. But I've heard so many people apply that incorrectly. Usually, whenever I hear it, it's said referring to a person who has no current evidence that they're a Christian. They never pray. They never repent of sin. They never confess their sin. They never come to church. Their lives look absolutely nothing like what Christ has said his people's lives were going to look like. If you look at their current lives, there's nothing that you would think, yep, this person is a Christian. And oftentimes, they've really gone off the rails. They look like whatever the opposite of a Christian would be. The opposite of God's word. Someone who is wholly devoted to their sin. You don't have any confidence that they're even a decent moral person, much less a Christian, based on just the evidence of what you can see. But then inevitably, every time we see this and we start talking about someone comes in, someone chimes in, a lot of times it's a parent, a lot of times it's someone else from church, and they'll say, yeah, but I remember that Sunday morning when they were seven years old, they walked down the aisle, they prayed that prayer, we baptized them next week. Once saved, always saved. They're a Christian. And that's not what that phrase means. That's certainly not what these verses are saying. God isn't guarding the inheritance of someone who is exercising no faith. God isn't ensuring someone perseveres who isn't exercising any faith. The way that he preserves his people, the way that he keeps their salvation secure is by continually giving them the faith, which is the means he has used to save them. So if you're not exercising any faith now, then it's most likely that you never exercised any true faith then. If you were saved then, then yes, absolutely, you are saved now. But in the case of these people who a lot of times we look at and we say, doesn't seem like a Christian to me, hasn't seemed like a Christian for the last decade or two, a lot of times whenever we look at them, the problem is that they likely aren't saved now because they likely weren't saved then. Now, it's not our place to determine the fate of every person that we meet. It's not even really that helpful a lot of times to try to guess where someone is in terms of their eternal security or salvation. 
But I do think that we have to be more careful in thinking through the fate of our friends and family. Because if we keep saying once saved, always saved, as if they're totally fine, when they actually are not totally fine, then we are not loving them. It is a thousand times more loving to look them in the eyes and say, hey, I don't think you're a Christian. I think you should repent and believe in the gospel. Than it is to say, yeah, I I bet you're fine. Back when you also wanted to be a dinosaur cowboy or an astronaut, and you made a profession of faith and were baptized, I'm positive that that was the truth and that this is the lie, rather than the other way around. I think we have to be more careful than that. But we also have to know, we have to trust, that those who are in Christ, God absolutely is guarding our faith. And in this, we rejoice. That's the third result from being born again in our text. We have a genuine joy. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we've got to see here is that the this in verse 6 could be taken to mean a number of things from what came before. But I think it's probably best to see a tight connection between everything that's happened in these verses and to trace the this from verse 6, in this you rejoice, all the way back to all the things that we've been talking about. God working for us by causing us to be born again. Because without that fact, we don't reach the joy in verse 6 because verses three through five aren't talking about us. So we do rejoice. We do have this joy as a result of our being born again. But that joy that we have, that's not a cheap joy. It's not something we slap on a poster and that gets sold in Hobby Lobby. It says, in this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. You see, this goes back to the persecution that Peter's going to be talking about throughout the letter. All of it stems from their status as being elect exiles as God's people. But notice that Peter says it only lasts a little while. The most it could possibly last is to the point of their death. And in the grand scheme of eternity, what a short time that actually is. And it's that perspective, that kind of long-term view, that allows us now to see our trials as the context for our joy rather than a hindrance to it. It's that perspective that allows us to see these trials as a refining fire, which tests the genuineness of our faith. Again, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, going back to what I just said about God guarding and preserving our faith, the trial never takes away true faith from anyone. What it does is it reveals the genuineness, the trueness of the true faith in those who have it. See, when gold is refined, what they do is they put it in fire, and it heats up, and it melts, and it allows the impurities in the gold to reveal themselves so they can be removed. 
And at the end of the process, after you do that several times, you're left with the purest, the the most precious gold that you can get to. But notice what Peter says about the preciousness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It's even more precious than that pure gold. Because that gold is still a worldly substance. That gold's still going to perish. But your faith, which is guarded by God, that never will. That's never going away. Your perseverance in the faith through whatever might come your way, that actually reveals that your faith is true and therefore more precious than gold. So rightly conceived, rightly thought of, these trials, this life, this period in which you are a soldier who is behind enemy lines, an elect exile, that's not actually an obstacle in the way of your faith persevering to the end. It's not an obstacle that has to be overcome. It's actually the setting, it's the context through which the greatness of your faith, the genuineness of your faith is going to be revealed. The trials, they are a test, yes. But for those who have faith, they're a test which leads to glory. Okay, if I were to go outside right now and run a 100-meter dash, I don't know that you could even call it a 100-meter dash. I think a 100-meter slow jog would be more appropriate. Maybe a 50-meter dash followed by a 50-meter slow walk holding my hamstring physically together with my own hands. That's what it would be called. But if Usain Bolt runs that same 100 meters, it's still a test. It's still a trial. But for me, it ends in shame, and for him, it ends in glory. It reveals what was already there that he is the fastest man alive, that I am not. You see, it's the same trial. It's the same hundred meters. It's the same hard thing. But for the one who can take it, the one who perseveres through to the end, it actually is the trial which allows you to get the gold medal, which allows you to show what was already there in the first place. So then we have to stop seeing our circumstances Our status as elect exiles as a problem that needs to get solved. We need to start seeing our status as a trial which is actually going to lead to our glory. It reveals the trueness of our faith. It's one more chance for us to identify with our God. One more chance for us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Because if you're never handed a cross to carry, how do you know that you're up to the task of carrying one? Until the day comes when you actually do. The faith which perseveres through testing, that's the truest faith that there can be. For it not only believes in what it does not see, but it loves what it does not see. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter's writing to people just like us who believe in Jesus, even though they never saw him. All they've done, all they've been able to do is hear the message that was preached to them. They've heard the truth of the gospel. They've responded with belief, with faith and hope, which has flowered for them into love for the one who saved him. 
Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the faith that we see here from these exiles, that's not even like special faith. That's not even crazy faith for believing in something that they haven't seen. It's simply faith by definition. Everyone who has faith is assured of the things that he hopes for, but the things that he doesn't currently see. You know, sometimes we read things in the Bible and we have to work a little bit to see how this text is talking to us. What does this have to do with me? How do I fit into this? This is not one of those passages. I think 1 Peter in general is not one of those books. Not a single one of you has seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. And yet, if you're a Christian, you have the same faith that these people did. You're in the same audience that Peter is writing to you. You're the people who believe that he was born of a virgin, even though people mock that idea all the time. You believe that he lived a perfect life simply because the Bible tells you that he did. You believe that he died, and there's really basically no one who denies that idea, but it is weird that you believe he rose from the dead, even though you never saw him alive, even though you still haven't seen him alive in the flesh. Without any concrete evidence that you can see or touch, if you're a Christian, You believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he said he has done. And that if you believe in those things, that your sins are actually forgiven, that you are born again, and thus you receive all of these results. You ultimately believe that your soul can be saved when you can't even see the soul that's being saved. And that's the fourth and final result of being born again in today's verses. You have a saved soul, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This verse draws a connection between something that was just said and then the result of that thing. It's saying that when you, in verse 8, believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, That when you do that, what you're actually doing is you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So once again, we're we're brought into the dynamic of how this all works. He elects and destines you to be saved. You respond in faith and repentance. He guards your faith and ensures that all who believe will believe to the end. You continue in the faith by faith. He saves your soul and gives you all these benefits and results. You obtain the salvation by believing and rejoicing in him. So you see, you don't have to get weirded out when we talk about God's election, when we talk about God's sovereignty in salvation, because it's not your job to figure out exactly how all of this fits together. It's simply your job to know, to believe, to trust that it does fit together. Figuring it all out, that's beyond you. You just have to trust that when you have faith, that when you believe, he's absolutely going to save you, to keep your salvation to the end. It's just your job to exercise faith, to move forward, and to obtain that outcome. God saves his people. And God's people exercise faith. 
The point of these verses is to connect the belief in joy, which you actively pursue and exercise, with that inevitable outcome of that belief in joy, which is the salvation of your soul. Those who are born again have that belief in joy, and those who believe in him and rejoice in him, those who have that belief in joy, they are the ones who obtain the outcome of their faith. They're the ones who are saved. So it's impossible for you to move forward in faith to obtain the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul, without belief in joy. You can't move forward without those things and think that you're saved at the same time. You can't move forward thinking that your belief in joy is all on you because he's the one who initiated this whole process. He's the one who caused you to be born again. He's the one who is guarding you in your salvation. And he will be the one who saves you from the consequences of your sin on judgment day. And I'm afraid that many of us are using the truths of the goodness of God and statements like once saved, always saved to neglect the fact that you are the one who is exercising faith and obtaining your salvation here. The faithful are being guarded through faith. The genuineness of whether you are a believer or not is being tested. And how we see if you, if you pass that test is whether your faith passes the test. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith through present belief and joy. No former faith will save you. No aisle you walked when you were seven will save you if these things are not true for you. We have no confidence about the person who used to believe and then when things got tough and then when they read that book and then when they went off to college and then when they went through that trial, no longer believes and they walked away. We have no confidence in the faith of the person who shows up to church just whenever they feel like it. We also have no f confidence in the faith of the person who shows up every week, but just sits there, doesn't participate, doesn't listen, doesn't sing, doesn't think. You hear the words, maybe even you sing the songs, but man, you are bored this whole time. You're counting down the moments, the times, until I just stop talking and get off this stage. Now, does that sound like someone who is loving what they don't see? Does that sound like someone who's rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Does that sound like the person who is obtaining the outcome of their faith, whose soul will be saved? You can absolutely be a Christian without constantly feeling like one every second of every day. You can be a Christian and be bored whenever I speak sometimes. I promise that that's true. Don't get too nervous about that. You can be a Christian and have seasons, times, moments where you doubt. Absolutely. But you can't in good conscience call yourself a Christian if rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible in the belief of the God who is going to save your soul doesn't describe you. If belief and joy have nothing to do with your current life, that doesn't sound like a Christian to me. If you're sitting here this morning bored because I wasn't funnier, if you're distracted because you're not at the lake, if you're just waiting for this to end, 
then I am talking to you. You are the most in danger person in this entire room. There are some people in this room who are not Christians and they know it. They're actually better off than you. If you're sitting there thinking, yep, I'm here, aren't I? I'm fine. Let me tell you, you are not fine. Unless you are believing and expressing joy that is inexpressible in this God who has saved your soul, man, I have no confidence that you're a Christian. No confidence that you are the one who is going to be saved on the last day. I think it's a bad posture for me to be constantly evaluating your faith, to be constantly asking myself if you're actively obtaining your salvation or not. I actually don't think that's helpful. I don't walk away from conversations with you going like, oh, I don't know about that one. (laughs) I don't do that. That's not helpful. But I also think I have to be honest that a room filled with people of whatever age who are currently rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible with joy that is filled with glory. I think a room filled with those kind of people are going to share the gospel more than I think we do. I think a room filled with those kind of people will ask fellow church members into our homes more than I think we do. I think we'll sing louder, more joyfully than I think we do. Holy, holy, holy Lord, ever sung like that on a Sunday morning. I'm here every week. I don't know that I have either. But I think if we're rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, how do we not sing like that? How do we have anything left when we're done? How do you not sit down exhausted when Cliff finally says, you can be seated? I think that's what it looks like. I think obtaining the outcome of your faith is more than this. It's not just those things. I didn't just give you a list to check boxes. It's more than that. But I don't think it's less. I don't think it's possible for you to have any kind of confidence in you being born again if all those things just straight up don't describe you. There is so much that comes to us from God causing us to be born again. But as we close, as I bring the sermon to an end, let me point out something that I love about what's happening in these verses. Do you see where being born again ends? It ends in life, in the salvation of your souls. You see, we haven't been born again. We haven't been resurrected from the dead with Christ for some stale purpose some dull existence. No, we were dead. And God caused us to come to life so that our souls would be saved. We're born again, yes, but born again to live again, to have that life, truly. And I think when that truth sets in, it's going to make being an elect exile so much easier.
It makes you live moment by moment in your living hope who is Christ. It makes you look forward to your heavenly inheritance, which is guarded by God for you. It gives you a genuine joy which only shines brighter through trials. It never dims. And it gives you that which ends in life, the salvation of your soul. I beg of you, if you hear this and you think, man, that's not me, then repent and believe. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Be born again. That offer is freely open every moment of every day. Confess that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you the hope and promise of new life. Confess that that's true. Believe that who He is and what He's done can forgive your sins and save your soul. Be born again today. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for all that you've shown us. Thank you for causing the salvation of our souls by causing us to be born again. Thank you for guarding our faith, preserving us to the end. Thank you for being the God who has an inheritance waiting for us. That saving our souls wasn't enough for you. You had more that you wanted to give us. Help us to respond in faith and repentance today. Help us to be saved through our faith. Help us to be the people who persevere through our faith. Help us to see these trials, not as trials which are in the way of our faith becoming real, but as trials which reveal our faith which is real. Help us to be a people who rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let that be true of us. Allow us to obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.